Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Today's guest is Mahin Ahmed, who has edited a new collection of essays, The Cambridge Companion to Comics. This collection offers both a broad, diachronic perspective, reaching back to the earliest print artifacts that could be called comic books, and a deep, synchronic view touching on mainstream and alternative comics work from almost every continent. Contributions include Jacqueline Burnt on the aesthetics of manga eyes, Daniel Stein on racial lines in comics, Kim Munson on the vexed relationship of museums and comics, and Shiamin Kwa on life writing in comics. Mahin is professor in the Department of Literary Studies at Ghent University and is the author of Openness of Comics, Generating Meaning Within Flexible Structures from the University Press of Mississippi in 2016, and the co-editor of Comics Memory with Benoit Crucifix from Paul Grave in 2018. Mahin is one of the primary investigators of children in comics and intercultural history from 1865 to today a collaborative project which brings together childhood studies and comic studies. Welcome to the podcast, Mahin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have just published this new collection of essays. There are essays on manga, on protographic novels from the 1930s, and on publications up to the 2020s. Methodologies range widely from affect theory to formalism to a focus on gender and sexuality. What was the process of finding scholar writers to contribute to this volume? What advice would you give to someone putting together a, a companion like this? Yeah, I I was fairly lucky with um, this companion because I I had the chance to collaborate with two colleagues, um, Julia Round and Ricky Quartzen, on um, a reader's essential a reader's guide to essential criticism published by Bloomsbury last year, I think. And that helped me get a very, yeah, synthetic overview of all that has been published on comics and graphic novels, which has been increasing in the re- in recent years. Um, I also had help from the commissioning editor, commissioning editor Ray Ryan, who's sort of defined what I had to do. So the companion is a fairly constrained form. It's 17 chapters and it has to yeah, cover the entire yeah, scope of um, the topic, which in this case was comics. And um, CUP has already published a companion to graphic novels 
several years ago, and they've also recently brought out a companion to the American graphic novel, and they also have a Cambridge history to the graphic novel. So the idea with this companion to comics was to sort of make that distinction between comics and graphic novels, so sort of sketch the broader medium of comics and sort of situate graphic novels within within it, but to also go beyond it. Um, Another constraint is obviously that because it's a companion, it's addressed at an undergraduate audience, or it's intended for classroom use, and also obviously for new for interested scholars or other colleagues who would like to, yeah, get into comic studies. So it has to be accessible, and yeah, I I I, I could go on about the process. I did I, I did have a I started with the general skeleton, a structure of what was essential for comics, or to to give this broader scopes of forms, readings, uses. I which is I I I do feel. I do understand that uses is a very utilitarian word, but it, I also wanted a word that captures how comics exist, yeah, in institutional settings in a way. Um, yeah, and then within that that three-part framework, I, I had a few key chapters I, I thought were interesting, and then there was I got some feedback, and then I adjusted, and then I thought of my ideal authors and then I tried to get in touch with them not all of them were available but most of them were and yeah I'm, I'm very happy with the end result and the group that got on board at the end I like to talk to writers about the writing process uh, this is unique because it's a collectively written book with you writing the introduction in one of the chapters and the bulk of the book written by other writers. How did you approach editing such a far-ranging and methodologically complex book? Did you try to find a book style that the chapters would conform to? Um, how did you think about readability or cohesiveness differently than in a single authored book? Yeah, I, I think the main concern was consistency of terminology. So... I, I, I did not impose a lot of um, constraints on the authors otherwise, but just we worked with the basic assumption that we un- we understand comics as a medium and that we use graphic novels and other forms of comics, comic strips, so forth, as forms within that medium. Um, Beyond that, the authors were quite free to choose what how they worked with their chapters, which is also, I, I think, quite normal. It's hard to give, it's, it's hard to tell people, experienced people, how to write or what to write. They know the topic better than anyone else usually. So it's like, you, I, I trusted them with it and that worked out fine. Um, there was... You you might notice what you might have noticed that with Simon Grennan's chapter on um, a polygraphic history, he does use the term drafters, and whereas everyone else uses the term artists, and he he argues for that as a fairly um, convincing reasoning, and so that that also coexists, right? So we've got different terms for the same. Yeah, okay. Um... Speaking of Simon Grinnan's essay, Comics Drawing, A 
polygraphic history, um, which, and, and you have mentioned this, that it's a, a convincingly intervenes in our terminology about comics drawing. Um, that essay looks at the juxtaposition of different drawing styles for comedic effect. In Grinnan's use, what is polygraphy? And how might it help us understand comics drawing, such as uh, Marie Duval's rinkophobia? So polygraphy is, um, comes was f- first used or introduced by Thierry Smuldern and um, the origins of comics. Um, Thierry Smuldern is a Belgian comic scholar, but also a practitioner. He has also written comic scenarios. Uh, and the book is, I highly recommend it. It's beautiful. It really traces a history of different forms of pictorial narratives. And his central argument is that comics use rely on polygraphy, which is basically a transposition of Mikhail Bakhtin's concept of polyphony to the visual world, to visual narration. So they incorporate different graphic styles to, yeah, to insert irony, but also just to work. Comics rely on these different connotations attached to different kinds of graphic styles. And Simon Grennan, who's, um, who is also an artist researcher and is an established um, comic scholar and who, who also brought out a book, I think around the same time as he, just right before the companion called Thinking About Drawing, which is a very impressive um, tracing of, um, yeah, different ways of artistic expression, different ways of thinking about graphic styles from all over the world. And he, he he uses the term drafters to sort of emphasize this connection that is at the same time bodily, but it's also it's also based on acquired skill, teaching practices, um, the way you, people learn to draw, and also social expectations and so forth. So if if you if you think about um, Maui Duval's Rinkophobia, which is from the nineteenth century, it's it's just a one panel cartoon, but it has these different layers. You have the woman, the skating woman, who is very realistically drawn, sort of against a background of these um, more cartoony stick figure characters, and m- most of the cartoons wait works or most of the cartoons power relies on this contrast between ideal worlds and yeah mocked worlds so maybe another thing to think to add to polygraphy is also this um and that's what simon grennan emphasizes is this indexing of um bodily relationships right so it's not it's, it's about the trace it's about the learned trace but it's also about these marks that we um, leave and that we attach to different styles, which in the movement that you see in the Rinkophobia um, cartoon is, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally brought to life, right? Um, Matthew Latourneau's chapter looks at seriality, in particular, the creative and commercial possibilities of serialization in comics. Uh, the roots of this history go all the way back to the 18th century. 
Uh, we live in a moment where concepts and characters have declined from comics into all kinds of media. Uh, we're positively deluged with um, variations, riffs, uh, reimaginings of characters like Superman uh, in Mark Miller's Red Sun or uh, Batman in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Tell us about Letourneau's uh, critical analysis of seriality. So, so Matthew Letourneau connects um, ser seriality, first of all, to the publication formats of the comics. So he identifies this, um, what he calls editorial seriality, which was central to the magazine or newspaper's identity. Every newspaper has certain expectations attached to every column and so forth. Then he also talks about generic seriality or this um, continuation that occurs to, through generic codes, through um, comics following the same or belonging to the same genres. And there's also diegetic seriality, which is created through serial characters and serial, um, well, and, and, and universes that are, then exist across different formats from newspapers to comic books and then later on on films. Um, he, when he, yeah, so, so the idea of declined is actually more um, this idea of iteration or spreading out across media because his central argument is that the characters become brands and they are then spread out as much as possible to be a to be commercially um yeah a to be profitable and b to still um adhere to the readers expectations that coexist and and yes yeah, so it's this constant there's this constant negotiation between yeah publishers, um, commercial drives, but also reader expectations and balancing out both, but also maintaining some kind of continuity to the character that is at the central, that that is the central attraction of these stories. Yeah, thinking about uh, continuity or the, the kind of core principle of a character, um, I think about um, a lot of fan culture it, it hues to an idea of continuity that seems maybe in tension with uh, ideas of character growth, character development, psychological maturity. Um, so how would you sort of square the, that commercial need for seriality with a, a, um, an audience's appetite for growth, change, development. Well, it, there's um, there's a very clear, uh, it's a very common example as well, right? That by the by the time we come to the '80s, the superheroes have become a lot, a lot darker and more introspective. It's it's a fairly simplistic argument, but the argument argument or the theory is it's they, they become so also because the fans have grown up or that they expect more from the superheroes and while this in itself is fairly simplistic i think there is a grain of truth to it in the sense that they were more adult readers but they also had 
different their expectations had also changed with time and then you you can see the industry reacting to that quite well fairly quickly in re- retrospect so by the time we come to the 80s you do have yeah diff you you do have different shades of yeah darkness to the characters but then you also have different kinds of um, alternative superheroes that counter the perfect type that was orig- that was originally superman or batman that's i think leads really nicely into my next question which is about a consumption circulation uh two chapters by paul williams and nicholas labar look at different aspects of a circulation and consumption paul williams writes about the label graphic novel is a marker of a certain kind of art status and Nicholas Labar looks at uh, talks about genres as blueprints, labels, and contracts. And it, I really enjoyed the distinction between these three ways of thinking about genre. Very is very useful for me. Um, what were your favorite insights from Williams and Labar's essays, respectively? I yeah, I I think Paul Williams does a very impressive job tracing. Yeah, this history of the graphic novel and all its different manifestations. So it starts with Töpfer and it goes on through the 19th century and into the 20th with the woodcut novels. Um, I, I, I was just impressed by the list that he sort of draws up of all these different artists engaging in visual narration throughout time. And not all of those not names are well known so he comes up with a list that is fairly yeah which fairly representative abroad and it it extends beyond even though he has three criteria so he has he he mentions the long form the complete narrative the book publication and this cons- and a sophisticated text as being the, main, the three constituents of a graphic novel the the actual examples he gives are are broader than what one would associate or what one usually thinks of when one thinks of the graphic novel, for instance, the woodcut novels by Franz Mazarel, by Lynn Ward. Um, then in the mid from the mid-century, he thinks of several, he, he lists crime picture novels from the 1950s, Mina Okibu, Citizen. 13660 from 1946, which tells about her internment. And then he talks about 1986, that game-changing year with um, Miller's Batman and the first volume of Mouse. But also, and this is also something we often forget, Harvey Peaker's American Splendor, which also came out in that year. So he he reminds us of this very... um, complex history of behind the graphic novel and also traces yeah the emergence of the term itself in fan discourse and he manages to i was just impressed by how he synthesized that history without um flattening out the details and with nicolas labaria it's, it's a beautifully structured text, again, around um, a topic that is fairly broad. And I think that is something that all of the authors in the companion need to be congratulated for. They had these very, very broad 
topics that they had in a very limited set of words, right? So it was only around 6,000 words each. And they they managed to create these very clear, accessible, but also comprehensive texts at the end. And Labar's concept, um, so the point of departure of for, for considering genre as a blueprint print label and a contract actually comes from Rick Altman's film genre book. And he shows how it neatly maps onto, onto them, onto the comics world. So you have with blueprint being covering the aspect of creation, label covering the aspect of distribution, and contract uh, covering the aspect of reader expectations, which is something that comes up again and again. And I also appreciated how he brought in this concept of the architect, which comes from Jeanette's, um, yeah, the narrative theory. It's the architects are actually these transcendent categories and it's also one of those aspects that complexifies the idea of a genre because if a genre becomes an architect, then it's at the same time. Everyone understands what that means, if what a certain genre will mean, but the actual examples of that genre become increasingly varied. That's right. That's right. I, you could apply this to superhero comics or to um, film noir or to... Um, autobiographical comics, graphic novels or anything. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. The more variation, the more different directions a genre is taken in, that there's a pressure put on that architects. Um, and, and let me just echo one of the things you said, which were, I felt all of the chapters were um, extremely clear, comprehensive. Um, they felt um, fresh while also surveying the critical landscape in a really helpful way. Um, I, I learned a lot and also um, I, I thought the writing was very charismatic, you know, um, in, a, in a great way. So uh, thank you for your work. Thank you for putting this project together. Thank you to all the authors who are actually great people to work with. <laughs> um, Jacqueline Burnt uh, explores the exaggeratedly big eyes in manga. Uh, what kind of effective work or eyes doing in manga? And how do uh, mangaka like Osama Tezuka and Jiro Taniguchi put manga eyes to use in their work? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. Jacqueline Burnt actually had a very um, difficult task, which is to talk about manga, <laughs> which is enormous. <laughs> within 6,000 words. So that was, um, and which is why she decided she she had we we had to talk a bit about the, the the chapter to sort of figure out how to how to deal with it because the the universe in itself is so vast and so diverse that it's it's um it's very complex to map it all out and she she herself has edited um a companion to manga which came out or is coming out very soon. Uh, so, so she she proposed this um, to use the eyes as a distinctive feature of manga. It's a, it's a stereotype associated with manga as a way into thinking about manga as an aesthetic form. And this this was also once again this also matched um, that parts 
main goal, which was to think about the forms of comics in different ways, whether it's drawings or graphic novels or serial forms, or in Jacqueline's case, manga. And so she takes a few key examples throughout the history of manga, starting with Tezuka, going up on Titaniguchi, and later on to show how eyes have been used in different ways to represent interiority, to convey um, also some ambiguity, and most of all, to create these effective connections with their readers. And she also, at the the very end, she identifies these really interesting tensions between seeing, being seen, um, interiority, exteriority, deep meaning, surface attraction, which I think is quite quite exciting. Adaptation is something we should talk about. Uh, Jan Batten's uh, talks about the balance between fidelity and creativity in comic book adaptations. Uh, I learned from uh, Batten's scholarship about Sebastian Conrad's For Watt, which is adapted from Samuel Beckett's novel Watt. Um, the the um, reproductions in the book are extremely fascinating. The the way Conrad adapts Beckett's very experimental novel. What does um, Batten's have to say about Conrad's adaptation of Beckett's fiction. I should have. I'm. I am terrible with this. I should have corrected a typo. I. I, oh, I, oh, I, feel okay. I can't read anymore. But that's it's actually okay. Conrad. So it's C O N A R D. So it's not Conrad, but C O N A R D. Yeah. Oh yes. Um, I greatly enjoyed Burns' uh, essay, and uh, it gave me a lot to think about. Um, the next time I uh, I read a manga or or watch anime, um, adaptation is something we should talk about. Jan Battens uh, talks about the balance between fidelity and creativity in comic book adaptations. I learned from Battens' scholarship about Sebastian uh, Connard's. Uh, for Watt, which is adapted from Samuel Beckett's very weird, very experimental novel, Watt. What does uh, Battens have to say about uh, Kunar's, uh adaptation of Beckett's fiction? Yeah, it's um, so Sebastian Connor is also an artist, but um, a researcher. So he he came up with he has a project on post comics and he published an edited collection on it in which he was interested in testing, once again, the boundaries of comics, of of where comics start and where comics end mostly, or how can we make comics that test the limits of comics? And and so his adaptation of um, Samuel Beckett's novel is also in that vein a bit, because it's, it's very, it's very abstract. It might, make you think of Martin Wong Jane's The Cage, which is uh, just a graphic novel that in which you just see spaces, but you never see a person or a protagonist. Um, so it's it's a very, fairly small book. I think it's only 32 pages long. And he's tried, and he's only got four sentences in it or four phrases from um, the original novel. And Barton uses this as an example of 
how comics can deal with the problems associated with transposing textual matter into into yeah the comics medium which one of the main one of the issues one of the very basic issues is just um shortening the material because if every word had to be given an image it would take a lot of space the most adaptations need to shorten or need to choose what they want to focus on and we see say that in Konak's text it's um and and it's not and it's yeah and it's comic it's um it's it's taken to an extreme so that you just have bits of the original text and these abstract um images that you need to draw connections with and Barton's argument is that these more creative more experimental adaptations actually do more justice to to the original work because yeah in the case of Samuel Beckett's what it's a it's a fairly complex or even impossible book to adapt maybe or to adapt well and so so the entire idea behind Barton's chapter is um to try and understand how we can how comics can effectively adapt literature without without literally doing so so sort of trying to avoid that need to be true to the original text and to harness the potentialities of the medium to to reproduce what the text is trying to do but in their own on their in their own in its own terms I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off that's great and that's um a, a really exciting um argument a, a kind of potentiality over um devoted fidelity or something to to the text you know unlocking um the the parallel purposes uh in a new medium um wonderful um daniel stein's essay racial lines uh, interrogating stereotypes in comics looks at the turn of the 20th century and particularly the way technological innovations in comics production reified some of the cultural discourses around blackness and anti-blackness. Stein examines a racist text like the Hudson uh, Jammer kids comics and comic strips in the New York Herald. What kind of intervention did the comics medium have 
specifically in these wider race discourses? Yes. So as, as Daniel Stein explains at the beginning, comics rely on stereotypes. The medium is based on simplified drawing, but also reproducing yeah, established types. And also, it's also very closely linked to caricature. So all of these elements feed into um, the very deep and troubling history between racism and comics that Rebecca Wanza, among other other scholars, has um, masterfully drawn out. Stein's argument is that he, well, there's, Jared Gardner, for instance, has argued that um, because of the sequential nature of comics, the idea, the fact that characters repeat themselves, reappear, or iterated, comics can counter stereotypes through that sequentiality. Um, in the case of the um, period that Stein focuses on, so the end of the 19th century, the earlier 20th century, these the comics are serial, but they're sometimes just tableaus or just one big um, drawing instead of um, cartoons or pa- cartoons uh, comics across panels. And his uh, it, it, he focuses on the point when color printing was introduced to see how the cartoons or how the comics react interact with the colored printing and one of the recurrent tropes was this um the characters being splashed or becoming or jumping into something wet and becoming black and the the shock or the change that 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 transformate transformation generated and Steinigsman shows how that sort of express that expresses a racialized imagination that was widely spread and very um very much anchored in the readership but also in the creators um, sensibilities and and he 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 also draws certain contrasts with other media so certain artists for instance when who drew very racist uh, cartoons did um have more realistic and less um caricatural drawings for um illustrated books and so forth but in the case of most of the comics cartoonists uh, in the case of most of the comics artists that we deal with for instance occult the the racist car, uh, type is very much prevalent Mahin, i want to focus in on your chapter with the next few questions uh your chapter is titled women in comics politics and materialities uh what gave rise to this chapter what inspired you to take up the topic yes yeah, so- I, I, I never, th- I originally didn't didn't think I would be talking about women in comics. It's not something I have really specialized in, but I've been a keen reader of Linda Barry over time, and because of the project that we have on children in comics, a part of which also focuses on graphic novels, I, I, I find. I've always found Linda Barry's treatment of child characters in her um, inner work very intriguing. So my point of departure for 
uh, for that chapter was actually these three or these very ch child characters, girl child characters that I found in the in the three in the three graphic novels, so One Hundred Demons, Hogcomb, and then Let's Not Talk Anymore. I also wanted to try and take a slightly different approach to thinking about women uh, artists. Instead of just focusing on the fact that they're women, I wanted to sort of see if, if we could approach their work through a shared technique or a shared um, theme that was running through, and which is why I, I focused on materiality. So this, this use of um, different styles to sort of do justice to the diversity of the work that exists. Talk to us about Linda Berry's 100 Demons, which is totally new for me. Um, I found your engagement with it really um, captivating. As you argue, Barry's text unsettles distinctions between popular and fine art, illustrated diaries and graphic novels, children's stuff, and adult reading. Can you tell us a little bit more about 100 Demons? Yeah, it's, it's 100 Demons is one of well, all of the all of the Barry books are great, but this is this is perhaps extra special because it's had a more troubled publication history, which also sort of reflects yet yeah, reflects the changing status of um, comics as graphic novels. So it was originally published by um, a small small press doing uh, doing visual books, and it's. It's um it it has a slightly strange format, so it's, it's longish and small. It's a hard covered book, and it's full of it's it starts with two table of contents, one of which you can hardly read. So it starts there's um introduction, selfhood, and then the other aspect, the other two elements are unreadable, and then it has the actual list of um the demons, the intro and the outro. It's most of the um most of the pages between the different sections are laden with these collaged elements, very rich collages combining drawings on fabric, glitter, pictures, and yeah, which which has now become a hallmark of various other books. And it, it's, it's just very intense visual material that also, again, tests the limits of comics in different ways. So every page that recounts the actual demon has only two panels and as with many of Barry's books they're very wordy and they often have child characters and they often they recount um, a story that is from her childhood or inspired by her childhood so there's often also this ambiguity between fact and fiction and 100 demons is officially labeled by Barry as um, a book of auto-bifictionalography. So this impossible term combining autobiography and fiction, which is also the question that she asks herself, or she was 
herself asking at the very beginning as she faces her, her demon, what, whether it's autobiography or fiction or so forth. And 100 Demons is actually the, an exercise that she read about in a library by a Zen Buddhist monk from the 16th century who encouraged this kind of um, painting in which you just followed your the strokes of the ink brush to allow whatever forms that could emerge immerse as a kind of automatism um, exercise. And yeah, it's um if if because it's it has all these children and because of the collage which is very and the colors that are so colorful, it's it, it would look like and a book for children also with the size and so forth and the and the big lettering but the material is actually quite heavy sometimes also very traumatic and so it's a very it's it's, it's a very smart and interesting negotiation between these different categories that we have regarding pu- um publishing image text um what's for children, what's for adults, um, and, and so forth. Ebony Flowers' uh, Hot Comb was published in 2019. You discussed the style as playful and cartoony and as predicated on immediacy and authenticity. How does that comic think through its own materialities? So Ebony Flowers is one of Linda Barry's students, and I, I think Hot Comb is one of her first books and she 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 uses a very different style to tell stories that are again possibly autobiographical and pos- and sometimes not so she also ma- maintains this kind of uncertainty between what happened to her or what happened to somebody she knew and, and so forth and she uses these very this very um fluid line I would call it that's also very direct it seems effortless but obviously it isn't but because it seems so effortless and fluid there I get the feeling that it has this immediacy to it and I also understand that authenticity is a very problematic term because every every mode of expression is obviously learned and polished and so forth but I there is um something to comics in general because they, because of this handmade um fluid quality that makes them that gives them the gives the medium the possibility to connect to readers and it's it's very um effective in hot comb I find I think this would be a good great time to talk about the the research project that you're working on um, one of the distinctive things about European universities are these collaborative, publicly funded, multi-year projects. You are the supervisor uh, of an ongoing project titled Children in Comics and Intercultural History from 1865 to Today. Can you tell us a bit about this project? Yes, this was, um, we are very lucky to to have the opportunity to apply for these grants. Um, they're fairly significant grants, especially for the humanities. You don't you don't need too much money to do a lot, and so this was a project that got almost a million and a half 
in 2018, so it's for five years, and it enabled me to hire two doctoral students and several postdocs over over time to focus on how we can think about comics through looking at children in comics, but also comics from children from 1865, which was the year that Wilhelm Busch published Monks and Moritz, that came um, that became a very um, iconic picture story that was also imitated by Rudolf Dirks for the Katz and Yarmers kids. So Katz and Yarmer kids are actually copies of Monks and Moritz. Um, so we wanted to follow these child characters over over time and across different cultural spheres, uh, France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, Spain, and so forth, and to see how comics have evolved over over time, especially in, ma- in the magazines. Um, and in doing so, we were also thinking of a new way of um, doing comic studies by bridging comic studies and childhood studies by again putting the child in the center of the discourse because in all most of the discourse around um, comics has been dominated by graphic novels and the fact that comics have grown up so we wanted to step aside and think of other ways of doing comic studies and the project also helped us acquire a collection of comics magazines, French and Belgian comics magazines from the 30s until now. So, which was a big, yeah, a big um, archival help because it's, it's, it's these, this material is not always preserved. Um, so now we have it in our library and we can just look at it when we want to. That's wonderful and uh, and important uh, scholarship. Um, returning to the companion, the final suite of chapters in this collection is on uses, uh, which we've already uh, kind of touched on and explored a little bit. Um, Benoit uh, Crucifix uh, writes on comics and their archives, Kim Munson on comics in the museum, Mel Gibson on readers and fans, lived comics cultures, Joe Sutliff Sanders on comics and libraries, and Susan currently on learning with comics. Could you give us a brief synthesis of some of the common threads and contrasts in these essays? Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that question. I will try to synthesize um, this, uh, this, this part. So it's the, the idea was to look at the institutional lives of comics, let's say. So we start with Comics and Their Archives by Benoit Crucifi, in which he he also did not have the easiest of tasks because the idea was to look at um, archives in comics or how comics approach their archives, but also connecting to the ar- I, archival processes associated with comics right right now because being disposable material they have not always been carefully archived the billy ireland is a wonderful example but then that it's it's one of those rare examples that we have obviously we have more in france but so it's it's just it, it he he expands on these issues of archiving that comics as perishable, perishable material face 
Um, Kim Munson traces a very impressive and history of ex exhibiting comics in museums, which goes as far back as 1843, and how she she very carefully traces also the changing status according to comics while these exhibitions evolve. Um, she it's also a trans um, transatlantic history with um, because she also includes the, uh, the the very famous landmark exhibition on comics that took place at the Louvre in um, 1967, and yeah, so it's a it's it's a, it's a it's a very um, it's a very synthetic um, summary of ex exhibiting comics, but also the different approaches uh, that we use at different moments and times to show comics, showcase comics and their history, which also means including certain um, artists, but maybe not others. So she elaborates on that as well, alongside different exhibition techniques. Mel Gibson talks about um, readerships, often readerships that were, uh, often comics readerships that were not um, included within the regular fan groups. So she, she she's a scholar of girlhood and comics and she pays special attention to that, but also how these um, readerships changed over time with different, yeah, different gatekeeping mechanisms. Um, jo Joseph Sanders talks about the troubled history that comics have had with librarians and how attitudes have changed over time and how comics also have encouraged reading and literacy in different ways. There is a wonderful example of Pogo incorporating different um, intertextual references and so forth. Susan Curtley talks about learning, learning with comics or different ways and in which comics are used for teaching. So it includes teaching with comics, teaching about comics, and most importantly, teaching through comics. So she emphasizes this need to establish multimodal literacy by encouraging people to, students to use comics tools, sketch noting and so forth um, actively in, in their courses. That's wonderful. Um, th thank you for um, undertaking that that task. That's a lot of um, work to bring together. Um, and I think you um, explained it and laid it out really well. Um, would you suggest, um, in, in general, a rising level of social capital or cultural capital associated with reading comics? Is that something most of the articles track? Um, I, I don't I don't know if the articles track it, but the very fact that you have a companion to comics right. suggests there is rising capital. But yeah, if you if you look at comics in the museums, that's very much about um, how comics have entered the art world, right. and and it also shows how how that entry has not always been very smooth or easy, but. But yeah, you, you you can also see it everywhere, right? Another chapter could have dealt with bookshops, maybe, because now you have very literary bookshops, including these very fancy graphic novels. 
And then you can also think about, yeah, the prices associated with graphic novels, which is a lot higher than those of, um, yeah, graphic novels are more expensive than um, regular books. So, yeah, they, they've clearly acquired cultural capital. They also win prizes, uh, right. literary prizes now. So Yeah, and yeah. adapted into other prize-winning uh, forms, like Fun Home yeah. was was yeah. adapted into an award-winning um an award-winning play, uh drama. A musical. Uh, yeah, musical, yeah. yeah. Um I um talking about this also makes me reflect on I don't think it's covered in the book. Um, the recent um, library bans for a, a number yeah. of graphic novels in the United States, at least, um, especially graphic novels that take up uh, the history of civil rights, race, uh, as well as sexuality, uh, LGBTQ representation. Um, do you have any sort of uh, thoughts about the the maybe politically subversive or um, at least according to some uh, politically dangerous uh, content of comics? Well, comics have done everything, right? They've been used for propaganda. Right. They've been used for activism. They've. It, it is true that the graphic novels have attracted a lot of um, minority voices, so a lot more women artists, a lot more artists with different art, sexual orientation and so forth. Um, when the pro when I was thinking about the project or writing the proposal, I I it was I can't remember if the library bans were already such a big issue. It was twenty twenty, so during COVID. I, I I remember them picking up steam just in my consciousness, um, maybe around that time, or yeah. well, also it's it, this thing is sitting on the side of um, the Atlantic. It was in the news, right. but it was also maybe not something I was, yeah, I I, I think I realized it a little later. I, I, I realized, I, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that it would, they would sort of explode as much as they did. Right. Because, yeah, it, it sort of caught momentum, which was surprising. I, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it continues to be a, a durable issue. And I wonder if there's something about um, the the visual form of comics. You know, the fact that somebody could pick up a book. You know, they're picking up, I don't know, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and they're picking up um, Fun Home. Um, obviously, they're going to be able to more quickly discern what they consider um, what, whatever, a censorable um, or something like that. But I also really appreciate your point about um, comics as, as being, for a long time, very attractive to marginalized groups, um, marginalized creators. But, but also for propaganda. So comics right. themselves are just, just immediate, right? So you have, you've always had comics for propaganda purposes as well um yeah but there there's you, you do have a point regarding the image and how the image is um, maybe more policed than the text just because it's so direct it's in your face um yeah and so there there are graphic novels that are very very honest too which i guess could be seen as troubling 
it, it also maybe even though they've acquired cultural capital, they might seem a slightly too alternative, maybe to to more conservative readerships. I, I don't know, because it, maybe there's still biases associated with comics, right? They, they're supposed they can they can still be quite violent, or maybe for set readerships and so forth. But yeah. It's probably also the image itself that can right, be right. Um well um something uh I maybe we'll be dealing with uh for a while, at least on this side of the Atlantic. Um, now that this collection is out in the world, um, what are you turning your attention to, Mahim? Uh, is there a, a book in progress, an article, a class that you're excited about, that you're designing? Well, there are many, many things because the project is ending in March next year. So we still have some work to catch up with. Um, the main Projects in, in the pipeline are a handbook on comics magazines. So how to look at different kinds of comics magazines, what approaches we can use, what is a comics magazine. <laughs> um, we also have a special issue on comics and children's magazines, again, the same, um, uh, and just following the same topic. I will continue to work on Linda Barry, and I have a less fully fleshed out project around the graphic novel Child, which is also part of that, um, the five-year project. So sort of to follow, yeah, the graphic novel Child and contemporary productions and, yeah, and across different cultural spheres and see what it can represent or, yeah. I'm very excited. We'll keep um, our eyes out for those projects. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Mahim. Thank you very much. <laughs>